Is something actually going to happen on June 28th with Basel III that is going to really end this paper, gold, and silver market as we know it? Well, hello there, my friends. Chris Marcus here with you for Arcadia Economics on a rather exciting time in the financial markets where, I mean, who would have guessed I'd be sitting here talking about a 5% inflation print. No, that is not John Williams shadow stats numbers. That's actually the BLS. A lot of things going on and quite fortunate to be joined by the great Alistair McLeod of goldmoney.com. And one of, I guess maybe these things come in time and historic perspective, but one of the great researchers of our day, in my opinion, also who has been on top of this unfolding Basel III story that's been uh, popping up and the data is rapidly approaching. A lot of people wondering what's going on. So Alistair, can't thank you enough for making some time and joining me here today and looking forward to digging in. So how are you, my friend? I'm very well and thank you for asking me, Chris. Well, thank you for uh, deciphering through all that legal jargon. I did go through that, that letter from the LBMA uh, and their lawyers speak and it uh, put me to sleep on an airplane flight home. So I appreciate that you have some insight, can help me understand it. And real quick, before we get started, I would just like to mention that today's episode is brought to everyone by Arcana Silver, which is about to go into production. Uh, and as we'll find, who knows, maybe right after Basel III resets gold and silver prices. So to find out more about Arcana, you can find them at arcanasilver.com which is in the link in the description field below and certainly with a higher silver price offering leverage to that. So uh, thank you again, Arcana, for being a part of today's show. And with that said, Alistair, uh, perhaps I'll give you the first question that I may repeat a couple of times over and over again, but I think what everybody wants to know, and then you can dig into it from there. Is something actually going to happen on June 28th with Basel III that is going to really end this paper, gold, and silver market as we know it? Uh, I think it's the question on everyone's mind. And uh, if you can even give a quick definition of what Basel III is, what it means for the context, and then uh, just take it away. Yeah. Well, the two dates that matter. One is um, the end of this month. Uh, when the Eurozone banks and also the Swiss banks um, will start complying with the new net stable funding ratio regulations, which have been introduced by Basel III. I'll describe what that is in a moment. Um, but there is also uh, another date um, which is more important, and that is uh, the end of this year, or more specifically, the 1st of January uh, 2022, when all the members, the banking members of the London Market Association um, uh, uh, will <clears throat> introduce this net stable funding ratio as well. Um, now, it, it, it has been out for consultation. We haven't got the confirmation from the London regulator that that is, the, that that is actually going to happen in the form in which it is proposed. But um, I think it is very, very difficult for the London regulator to accommodate the um, uh, London Bullion Market Association. Now, the reason I say that is that, and you, you read the letter, it sent you to sleep. I can understand that. <laughs> but um, if you look at it, it's actually very misleading. Um, they write it in such a way that the reader is led to believe that unallocated gold is gold. It's not. It is not. Um, and let me just explain that uh, for a moment. Any bank um, that takes a position in gold either does it um, on behalf of clients and it's physical gold, in which case it's in custody and it's not on the bank's balance sheet. On the other hand, what it can do is it can have an unallocated liability to depositors um, and that appears on its balance sheet. And that's what we're talking about. Now, um, it, if I just take you through uh, how unallocated gold in inverted commas is created, what happens is that um, the trading side, the trading desk of, uh, of, of uh, this bank, um, we'll call it the bullion trading desk, um, says, 
Well, we would like to have a facility so that we can trade the market and we will trade in London in the, um, in the Ford market and we will trade also on COMEX. And uh, what we want is we want to have, um, uh, uh, let's say a facility of $100 million uh, to take positions in the market, okay? So uh, let's assume that management agree or treasury agree. Now what they then do is they then mark the balance sheet on the asset side of the balance sheet. They then have um, uh, uh, an asset, which is money owed by the bullion desk to the bank. And then on the other side of the balance sheet, the liabilities side of the balance sheet, they credit a deposit of 100 million to the trading desk. So you've got basically, you've got on one side 100 million and you've got the other side 100 million and um, the balance sheet the bank's balance sheet still balanced it but where does this come from it's just balance sheet entries it is created out of thin air it is the creation of credit now the difference between this and a normal deposit is a normal deposit you go along to your bank and you you know you sort of open an account and you might transfer some money from another bank into that account um, and uh, there is then a liability that bank has a liability to you in dollars okay now in this case the bank has a liability to you in dollars but a value tied to the spot price of gold this is not gold this is this is a completely artificial Special thing. It's rather like um, you know when you bet a on a horse in the horse race. You don't own the horse in any way. You own no part of it whatsoever. But if the horse wins, you come in and you collect. Yep. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. Now, going back to this letter which the um, uh, the LBMA wrote, um, they wrote this in such a way that you would think that unallocated gold is actually physically go phys physical gold. It is not. And um, I can tell you that that sort of approach is unlikely to charm any regulator out of his tree because the regulator knows he's being sold a pup. Or if he doesn't, we should be even more frightened of regulators than we are because they're completely incompetent. Well, well keep in I mind, just... there is rust in Benham and the CFTC, so let's not rule anything out completely. <laughs> I don't, I, you know, I don't mention, there's no names involved in this at all. I mean, we're looking at institutions. The fact is that the regulators have a job to do and they do that to the best of their ability. It may not be as well as something that you and I could do between us, but they are appointed to do it and they do it. So this comes on to the point about, um, is this gonna go through? I really don't think that the um, Prudential Regulatory uh, Authority, which is the regulator in London concerned with this, has any alternative at all, but to apply the net stable funding ratio to um, uh, this unallocated gold market. Now, given that that is happening in the letter, um, the LBMA said an 85% RSF charge, this is just one side of the ratio, will undermine clearing and settlement, drain liquidity, dramatically increase financing costs, curtail central bank operations. I agree with all those points, yes. Um, but there's actually nothing I don't think the regulator can do about it. And what's more important, this was introduced um, uh, or pointed out to me by one of your colleagues, um, uh, Craig Hemke, that because someone had sent him an email saying, have you seen this? The uh, uh, US controller of the currency is um, uh, introducing the stable funding ratio rule as of July the 1st. So it's happening in America as well. Now this affects both the Ford market in London and also the um, futures market on COMEX. Now the reason it, it, it involves both these markets is that uh, the, the, the players in both, you know, that we've got the same players basically in both markets. So um, if London's shut down, then effectively the swap category in COMEX is going to lose most of its, um, you know, of its liquidity. I mean, it's just going to disappear. Now, this this matters because if you look at the commitment of traders' figures, 
On the um, non-spec side, you've got obviously two categories. You have got the producers and refiners and all the rest of it. And you've also got the swaps. Now, you take the swaps out, all you're left with is 25% of the open interest is actually provided by uh, the producers of that category. So what this does is it removes um, three quarters of the liquidity on COMEX. I mean, it's pretty much as simple as that. So uh, what happens in that market um, if a hedge fund decides, well, you know, we're going to sell gold by, sorry, sell dollars by gold, then it's going to, you know, the effect is going to be a lot more dramatic than it is now. So um, there's going to be greater volatility. The other thing about it is that um, with this um, net stable funding ratio coming in and the banks effectively withdrawing from providing gold trading facilities, um, both unallocated, I mean, they will try and run unallocated accounts rather than have uh, custodial accounts. Um, they discourage custodial accounts by loading, loading uh, uh, storage charges and insurance costs and all the rest of it. And they turn around to uh, their customers who want to run a gold account and say, look, you'll be far better running an unallocated account, which we can do for free. Oh, oh yeah, sure they can. So, um, you know, we have a situation where we now got to sort of look at, um, you know, how much of the uh, LBMA's bank's business is with non-LBMA members. Now, we don't actually know that, but uh, the LBMA produces figures which are only deals between LBMA figures, and the daily settlement is in the region of about 30 million ounces. That's the daily settlement. There's obviously a lot of turnover underneath that during the day, but the, what we want to know is how much trade is actually happens between LBMA members and customers. In other words, you know, the people who have a gold deposit, an unallocated gold deposit account with the bank. And I think uh, looking back to the times when this was reported, and I mean, you have to go back quite some time. I think there's a very rough rule of thumb. Uh, um, the non-LBMA member uh, trades are roughly five times the LBMA member trades, you know, between, between members. So we're talking about very, very large amounts of trade on an unallocated basis. Okay, so these banks now shut down their positions. They decide they're no longer gonna be in this market. What ha happens is that they send out uh, a letter to all their depositors saying, uh, we're closing the deposit accounts, or we're gonna redesignate it as a dollar account or a euro account or whatever, you know, whatever we account in um, at your choice. But um, closing this down, we will pay you out uh, at the gold price under the terms of whatever, but you're going to get dollars. You're not going to get gold because it's unallocated. It's just a derivative. So you don't get the physical. So this means that there's something like, um, I don't know, 150 million ounces roughly of um, daily settlement, perhaps um, with non-members. If, if my sort of five times three figure is anything like ballpark correct, um, these guys are going to get a letter and they're going to suddenly find, I thought we had a position in gold. Turns out we haven't. So what do I do? I mean, I think in this environment, this very inflationary environment, uh, quite a lot of these guys are going to turn around and say, well, it looks like we've got no alternative, but to tell the bank to get us some gold and put it into custody for us. So you can see that this could create an awful lot of demand. Now, the only caveat, demand for physical, the only caveat I would put on this is that there's nothing to prevent a bullion bank continuing to run positions in the gold market. But in doing so, that bank would have to accept the balance sheet penalties of the new net stable funding ratio calculation and regime. So this is what we're looking at. I think it is possible that some banks may continue, but the problem is that um, you know, it's actually quite a delicate operation. The way you make money in the market as a bullion bank is you run a short position all the time. It's the short position that creates the, um, the open interest on, on, on COMEX, for example. So you've got a short position. 
you're going to lose money when the price rises on that short position. But you make more money because you trade it. So that every day you're buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell, and you make money on the trading. You've got the spread in your favor. Um, you've got the fact that you can read the guy who comes in, you know, if does he have an open position with us? Um, the answer is no. Okay. He's going to be, I mean, it's, it's 10 to one on that he's going to be a buyer. Okay. So we can load the price. So you can see how this works. But um, given that it's a net figure, you're making profits, if you like, on the trading, in, out, in, out, and you're making a loss in a rising market in an inflationary times on your short position, are you going to continue with um, this situation, netting one off against the other, if uh, the net stable funding uh, ratio uh, regime um, introduces new hurdles, if you like, um, as far as the overall balance sheet is concerned? I think you will find that the treasurers in the banks are going to turn around and say, well, look, we've got to cut these operations. I mean, we reduce them down to whatever, or we just get out of the market entirely. So I think um, after a long period of time, there are likely to be quite a lot of dealers on bank uh, trading desks who are going to find themselves out of work. Well, wouldn't that be a beautiful surprise for the world? And Alistair... <clears throat> Obviously, I know there's some people that maybe they don't know what to think. They've heard gold manipulated. Um, but to support what you've been saying there, uh, real quick, I'd like to reference, this is the LBMA, their incredible silver report, where they, uh, a couple months ago, admitted how scared they were of running out of metals. Uh, and I'd love to get your comment on that before we wrap up. But there was a particular comment here that I think speaks to what you were just saying, because uh let's see if we go down here we go um taking in turn even though swiss refineries reopen and we're able to deliver metal into new york banks risk departments continued to limit the ability of their trading desks to issue contracts this had the effect of tightening their supply and in turn kept futures prices higher for longer now it says when the bank's risk department basically said, stop shorting so much. And they're not talking, as you pointed out, they're not talking about the supply of gold, effect of tightening the supply of paper. When they stopped shorting, the price went up. And again, this is coming from the LBMA. And I guess to the larger point, what does it say about the gold market or the integrity of the gold market where here it is in a couple of weeks, you know, we're sitting here trying to decipher lawyer speak where the price of gold might shoot astronomically higher. And uh, I'll be curious if you have any uh, forecast of what you think will actually happen to the prices. But it's like gold is being priced by something lawyers and bankers who have been caught cheating and violating rules time and time again. I mean, does, is there a better way to put in perspective that the gold price has nothing to do with the actual physical supply and demand of gold? Um, what do you think about that? Well, um, I mean, basically, uh, you know, if you go all the way back to the Nixon shock, which was what, August 1971, um, at that point, a decision was taken by the US government, uh, US Treasury, yeah, um, that uh, they would now promote the dollar without the backing of gold as the global uh, reserve currency. So before then, it was gold through the dollar, okay? So the policy then was to denigrate gold, to say that gold is yesterday's story, and that's something that's continuing. I mean, you know, we've had the sort of pet rock theory and all the rest of it. That's just a continuation of that policy. It can be used as a doorstopper too, according to alleged yeah. greatest investor of the 20th century. So keep that in mind. Well, it can, but I tell you what, if you're going to use it as a doorstop, I hope you've got security on your home. <laughs> but anyway, putting that one to one side. Um, and really, if you like working with that, um, how do you diffuse demand for gold? Well, the answer is you create artificial supply. And I have no doubt at all in my own mind that um, behind the authorities' um, uh, uh, policy of the financialization of markets as a whole was the thought that if they financialize commodities and gold, silver, whatever, and energy markets, they would actually take, they would absorb the 
speculative demand, otherwise would drive prices higher. And so what we're now seeing is an end of that um, era when they used the financial, the spread of uh, financialization into commodities as a means of putting a control on commodity prices. So that basically, I think, is the situation which is now coming to an end. So it looks to me like we're entering a new era. Uh, and um, when it comes to silver, I think I should point out that there are two big differences. The first is that central banks don't hold any silver, so they can't come to the aid of the market. This makes silver inherently more risky as far as the bullion banks are concerned. Because central banks, I mean, it's, it's, it's routine in London for um, the Bank of England to uh, persuade um, those it has earmarked gold for um, to earn something on their gold by leasing it into people who temporarily need it. And uh, consequently, quite a lot of the gold which is sitting in London appears to be leased. The last um, person who really did some serious research on this was a guy called Frank Veneroso, who uh, spoke about this at a conference in Chile um, back in 2002. And uh, he concluded at that time when uh, there was roughly, I think it was 33,000 tons of official um, monetary gold. This is gold held by central banks against their, 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 their liabilities. Um, and of that, he reckoned that somewhere between uh, 10,000 and 16,000 tons was out on lease or being swapped. Now this is, this is huge. So you can see that um, from the authorities' point of view, there is this, um, if you like, desire to try and uh, deflate demand by absorbing it in such a way that it doesn't drive up the price. And that basically is what leasing does. So without the Bank of England, you can see that, um, you know, there's no leasing of silver. So anyone running a short position in silver can't go around to the central bank and say, um, have you got anything to lease because I need to balance my books. Um, leasing also, but just sort of on gold, just for a moment, leasing, I think, has become a lot more sophisticated. So in the old days when Frank Venerosa was around, um, gold was de delivered into the market, it was sold into the market, and it was bought back. Now, remember that up until the early 2000s, um, we were in a bear market. Now, in theory, it must have been relatively simple to buy back the gold. But in practice, I think it was actually a lot more difficult. Guess why? Because the Chinese in 1983 decided that they didn't want to have just dollars and other capitalist uh, currencies because they reckoned that, I mean, you know, the, the uh, uh, Marxist universities uh, in economics taught one simple thing, and that was that, you know, capitalism had the seeds of its own destruction and their currencies would go down with it. So China doesn't want all these dollars and everything. It wanted something else. And of course, I don't know if your uh, listeners know or your viewers know what the Chinese for gold is, but it's the same word as money. So, you know, money is money. So gold money in China is money, money, if you'd like. So this is a fascinating, this is a fascinating thing. China was basically mopping up all the loose gold, including stuff. By the way, Alistair, I, I don't think uh, Jerome Powell or Ben Bernanke are aware of that translation, apparently. Well, maybe not, but um, there would be in denial, I think. Um, if <laughs> that is true, I agree. <laughs> so, so, but you know, I mean, look, officially they've got to deny it. So, so um, you know, we we're not privy to their 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 deeper thoughts, if you like. We know what their their, their official response is. Um, so that gold probably never really came back. Now, nowadays, I think what happens is that the leasing of gold basically means it doesn't actually leave the Bank of England vault, but there's just a, um, if you like, a ledger entry occurs. And that's the extent of the transfer of gold. I mean, it's, I, I, the reason I say this, or I know this, is because um, back in the days when Frank Benarosa was doing his research, I used to lunch with um, Terry Smeaton who provided Frank Venerosa with his information. I used to lunch with him about uh, a good, you know, sort of once, maybe twice a week. Um, I didn't ask him all the questions on gold. He was actually head of the foreign exchange department. 
Department of the Bank of England. Um, and the re reason he was there was we lunched at the Bankers Club, which was at the back of the bank. And I think, you know, like quite a lot of um, uh, people, you know, sort of fairly high up people, they like to get off site, if you like, just for a little bit of the day. So rather than lunching in the canteen, he used to come over to the Bankers Club and lunch there. Really nice guy and all the rest of it. He's dead now, unfortunately. I'd love to have asked him all the questions, if you like, for the benefit of hindsight. But anyway. And at the same time, we used to see these uh, uh, security trucks going in and out of the back entrance of, um, of the Bank of England. I mean, twice a week, there was very, very heavy traffic. I, you know, they're almost queuing up at the back of the back of Bank of England in Lothbury, which is the street where the entrance is. Um, so that doesn't happen now. But believe you me, there's a lot of gold which is out on lease. And this leads into another thing which, um, you know, why was it that uh, the Bundesbank decided to get its gold liquidity back, first of all, out of the Bank of England and secondly, out of uh, uh, the, the New York Fed? I mean, the answer, the official answer is that once the Berlin Wall fell down, there wasn't the threat from the East and therefore they felt that there wasn't much reason to hold all their gold, if you like, as far away from Germany as possible. Yeah, I can accept that. But I wonder to what extent um, the stories going around the Bundesbank were that perhaps our gold is being leased without us being told. Now, if that is the case, then you can see that there would be a lot of pressure for that gold to be returned. And the not just pressure from the general public saying, why is our gold away, but also I think internally. Um, reverting to silver for a moment, there is another aspect of the problem that we've seen recently, and that is that there is no liquidity. I mean, there really is very little liquidity in both gold and silver in London and on COMEX. Um, the priority, as far as the LBMA is concerned, and as far as the banks are concerned, has been to get the refiners to concentrate on refining gold coming in. I mean, it's, it's both scrap gold, newly mined gold, um, whatever, get that refined. We don't want the backlog there because we need that immediately, which means that they have put to one side the less profitable refining of silver. And that has created a bit of a backlog in terms of the availability of physical silver as well. So going back to that um, uh, uh, note that you just read out, there are those dynamics, I think, behind it. And we had the interesting situation which didn't really help matters where, uh, what, according to the LBMA, one of the uh, vaulting members misreported its holding of silver. Oops. And of course, amongst all the gold and silver bugs, we all think this is, you know, that this is um, deliberate uh, obfuscation and all. Look, I don't know. I really don't know, Chris. I don't actually care. All I care about is that we're talking about sound money and we know there's a shortage of it. And we also suspect that the regulatory changes that are coming through from the Bank of International Settlements are going to make it almost impossible to acquire bullion at anything like current prices as this horrendous monetary inflation uh, spins itself out. I mean, we really do, we, we are on the edge of. Um, not, you know, not just the sort of this inflation thing that goes away, that's not gonna go away. I mean, you believe that, you believe in fairies at the bottom of the garden. This is real. And not only is it real, but I think we've, uh, you know, John Williams has been, um, I think, you know, very sensibly on a number of websites telling people, um, you know, look, the rate of inflation, the true rate of inflation without all the adjustments that make it look as if it's nothing, <laughs> the true rate of inflation is between 11 and 12%. Now, if you accept that, and I do accept it, um, it was also confirmed before they shut down, uh, I don't know if they've reopened, but uh, the Chapwood Index, which, which sort of worked it out on regularly bought items. I mean, something like, I think they're uh, around 50 cities, 500 items, 50 cities, um, you know, track the prices twice a year. And that was also confirming um, a rate of price inflation of over 10%. And not only that, but when you see that how you've had this massive expansion of the quantity of money in America um, since, I mean, particularly since 
uh, March 2020, when the Fed started doing 120 billion a month of QE, it cut its funds rate down to zero the Friday before. So that was on the 19th, 20th, on the 23rd. You know, this, this new um, accelerated QEs really started uh, from then. The amount of money that's being printed to finance, um, you know, government spending anything you like to ramp up markets as well is unprecedented. I mean, it really is not just in quantity, but in terms of um, in relation to the size of the economy. So this is this is this is really major. So I can believe what um, uh, uh, um, you know what what shadow stats are saying. I can believe that, and I can further further believe that. Um, this rise in price inflation has not stopped yet, and it's going to go further. Okay, so the question we need to ask ourselves is what is the appropriate rate of interest to reward the foreigners for holding on to the dollars? And when I tell you that the foreigners own roughly $30 trillion, one and a half times the US GDP, they have got an awful lot of dollars that we've got to persuade them to hold on to, Otherwise, the dollar is going to go through the floor. So, you know, what's the rate of interest? Now, if you're going to if you're going to equate it to the true rate of price inflation, then we're looking at not two percent yield on the ten-year, not three percent yield on the ten-year, but we're looking at something which is closer to that 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 percent. So. Now, we won't get there immediately, but you can see that the conditions are there for a crash in the US Treasury markets. That obviously undermines the situation for the US equity market. And this is why I've been telling people that, um, you know, I look through history and I see this as being an absolute dead ringer for something that John Law did in France. Uh, exactly 300 year, 301 years ago. Now, I started talking about this when it was 300 years ago. It's not 301 years ago, 1720. The Mississippi bubble. He puffed up the bubble basically because he was controller of the currency and he could print livre to go and buy shares in his bubble, which he did. And he did it in some style and he pushed the bubble up. But the problem is that bubbles eventually stop just the same as the American financial asset bubble will also stop. Now, when that happens, what happens to the currency? Well, the answer is that the currency's future has tied itself to the future of the financial assets. And if you get a collapse in the stock market, collapse in um, the prices of US treasuries as the yields rocket up and catch up with reality, then the dollar's gonna go with it. And this was played out by um, a, a, an Irish French banker called Richard Cantillon, who we know in another context, we know as, as one of the great early economists. Um, and he worked out how to play this and he made his second fortune. The first fortune was also <laughs> um, out of John Law's uh, scheme. Um, but the second fortune, he decided that the way to short this ridiculous situation was not to sell shares in John Law's Mississippi venture, but to short the currency, which he did in, in London and Amsterdam, which were the two uh, foreign exchange centers at that time. And uh, anyway, basically, the shares went from around about 12,000 livre each down to three or 4,000 livre, <coughs> quite a fall. But what was really um, uh, the real fall was in the livre because on the London exchange, it went from a value. I can't remember what it was. I mean, it, was, it wasn't that high, but the important point was it went to zero, big fat zero. That's the way to play it. So if you're a foreigner with a little part of that $30 trillion, the way you play the dollar is quite simple. The way you pay uh, US financial assets is quite simple, short the dollar. And that's what's gonna happen. The dollar is gonna go through the floor. And um, what we're actually saying is that the purchasing power of the dollar is going to dissolve, if you like. And when the purchasing power of the dollar dissolves, guess what? The purchasing power of gold will, I mean, it will retain its purchasing power, which basically means that the relationship between the two is you will see the gold price 
way up there somewhere um, in worthless dollars. Now, this is why I never ever make a forecast about gold prices because the assumption is always that the reason I'm making this forecast is I'm buying gold and I'm going to sell gold once I've made my forecast and I'm going to go back into dollars. No, I'm not. I'm not interested. I'm never going to sell my gold. I'm going to spend it. That's how I will finally uh, deal with my gold. And this is the important point. So never, ever, ever make a forecast of the price of gold. It's an idiot's game. It really is. And I don't play it. <laughs> so anyway, I hope that's, that sort of explains a little bit about my, you know, uh, my thinking about the situation and why... Um, what this Basel III thing is, is, is likely to do, I think it's just going to make a bad situation uh, potentially considerably worse. And I think, you know, once things start sliding, I mean, if we start, start seeing the dollar slide, <coughs> it will be reflected in the gold price, which doesn't stop at 2000. It'll go on and on and on up. And it will be very difficult for anyone to buy. And the reason they will find it very difficult to buy is they're still thinking in terms of dollars is money, gold is going up, I'm going to get out of my dollars into gold with a view to coming back into dollars. That's the wrong way to look at it. I mean, the better way to look at it is, okay, Cloud might be talking absolute rubbish, but on the off chance he's talking a little bit of sense, I'm going to have an insurance policy. And that insurance policy is to own a little bit of gold, just in case just in case. I think that's probably the way people should look at it. And if they agree with me, then, um, you know, that's, I mean, the other thing is that uh, the difference with an insurance policy is you pay the insurance policy and you don't get it back. And this one, you will get it back. You may not get it all, you may get multiples of it, but <laughs> it's not money wasted, if you like. Yeah, and I really appreciate you mentioning that. Something is that people don't want to understand it. Uh, it's, it's just a little confusing, and you put it in great context because, you know, I get that question a lot. Well, when, what price do I sell my silver? You know, maybe in a different environment, I could see digging into that question more. But it's like if that's money, it's we're, you know, I hear people talk about the price of gold did this, did that, and I'm like, no, the price of gold was an ounce of gold. It's still gonna be an yeah. ounce of gold tomorrow, a million years from now. It's the dollar that's changing and especially in an environment where i can't see all right they could stop printing but there goes your stock and bond bubbles so maybe the uh, analogy we used to use in option trading land was that let's say i give you a 50 dollars bill i mean you're not going to rush out to lock it in for four tens <laughs> i mean because it's just you use it and spend it and i think as time goes by perhaps that will be easier to see Yet, Alistair, you mentioned silver a couple of times. I actually did have an interesting question I'd love to run by you. I've not heard of any central banks buying silver yet. Um, I mean, we hear anecdotally, maybe China's buying silver. Someone was asking in particular to Russia, and certainly with Putin, who is very adamantly talking. I mean, when we don't get much coverage of him unless you're looking for it here in the West. But not only does the guy say exactly what is on his mind, he puts the country's monetary actions behind it. Is it possible that, I mean, I'm guessing, you know, didn't contact me yet, but I mean, this isn't rocket science. Could any of these governments start loading up on silver, especially one that has made it clear they're sick of the US dollar bullying everyone around. And I mean, that's why I started the channel because it seems like the biggest Achilles out there to me. Any thoughts on that or anything else regarding silver here? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, as a starting point, I don't think any central bank actually anticipates backing their currency with gold. That's the first thing. Um, things have got to evolve, and I think it will drive central banks into a corner, because when they see the currency going down, I mean, just imagine they're in the position of John Law, let's say, in... <clears throat> um, halfway through uh, 1720, or alternatively, they're in the position of um, uh, the Reichsbank um, in uh, 1923. You know, you see the paper mark going down and down and down and down. At some stage, you've got to stabilize it. Now, how are you going to stabilize it? I mean, the way the French did it after the, re well, just sort of through the right. revolution. Actually, if I can interrupt for a second, please. I know how they're going to stabilize it, or they're going to attempt to, 
they're going to print more, which of course is a little backwards, but we know that's what they're going to do. That's all they do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but I mean, I'm talking about the situation where they suddenly, you know, they realize that, um, you know, this is just completely out of their control. The only thing they can do is to take what gold they've got in the vault and back their currency with it. Now, if the rate at which dollars are back to 300,000 to the ounce, then that's got to be the rate. And, um, but I think the point I'm making is that at the moment that no central banker is thinking that gold will be mobilized to back any fiat currency. That's just not on the agenda. So we're looking through to a time when that will happen. So I think this is answers your question on silver. Um, you know, they've got a sort of idea as to why they should hold on to gold. Um, in Putin's case, it's quite simple. Um, it's the alternative really is the dollar, if you like, as uh, the major international um, hegemon uh, in the currency world. Okay, um, that's fine, but I don't want to hold dollars, he says. So what does he hold? He holds gold as, instead. Why? Because gold is nobody else's um, uh, liability. You know, so, you know, you've got gold, you've got gold. It's, it's actually as simple as that. But I don't think he intends to back the ruble with it. I don't think the Chinese intend to back the yuan with it. I expect that that situation will change. And the reason it will change is that there will come a point when a currency, because there isn't a decent currency anymore. So, and the politicians can't get paid um, in a decent currency because the currency is going through the floor. Um, so they've got to stabilize it. Uh, now, I expect that the initial attempt at stabilizing it will probably fail because they won't do it properly, or it will just sort of be a holding operation while everybody scratches their heads and thinks, oh, what do we do now? Won't work. So you, there's quite a lot to go through before we get a solution to this. But the point is that if gold is not even on the agenda at the moment of being re-monetized, which is the way the central bank would put it, uh, then certainly there's absolutely no way they're looking at silver. But the way we should look at silver, in my view, is that it is a monetary metal. And just because central banks don't hold it doesn't mean to say we shouldn't hold it. Um, we're going to see a situation where eventually, and I think it, once, once it starts to happen, it'll happen very, very quickly, uh, fiat currencies will disappear. And then you have to ask yourself the question, who is going to, yeah, absolutely, but who is going to, um, decide what the new money is. And I can tell you, it will be people like you and me. You know, we, we, we have silver, we have gold. It will, we will spend, spend it back into circulation and uh, we will, we will uh, enjoy spending it in, back into circulation because we'll be able to buy things incredibly cheaply. I mean, they'll be very expensive in dollars. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, back in uh, the uh, German inflation in 1923, um, in, in, in the middle of 1923, you could have bought a six bedroom house in a swanky part of Berlin for um, God knows how many, I mean, I haven't worked out how many uh, um, paper marks it would have cost you, but I mean, we're talking about huge quantities. I mean, billions, but you could have also bought it with foreign exchange dollars, it would have cost you $100. And in those days, the rate between the dollar and gold, fully exchangeable, was $20.67 uh, uh, to an ounce of gold. So effectively, you could buy a six bedroom house in a swanky part of Berlin for less than five bucks. Now, oh, what's wrong with that? That is the position. If you actually do have some gold, some silver, then there will be people who will want that gold and silver in exchange for real assets, in exchange for food. Now, this brings me on to silver because, or even more on silver, because silver has always been, um, if you like, at a lower value than gold. And it was set by um, uh, Sir, Sir Isaac Newton at around about 15 and a half to one. There was nothing magic in, in the rate. That was more or less the market rate at the time. 
But what we're looking at, I think, is it returning to that sort of level. So for people who want to really accelerate the, um, uh, if you like, the, the uh, just catch up from uh, the losses that they have made by not uh, moving into physical gold or physical silver, one way in which you could do it is to go into silver and to benefit from the fall in the gold in the gold silver ratio as metallic money begins to be um, more regarded as the solution to the collapse of fiat currencies. Well, as the old saying goes, is there anything silver can't do? <clears throat> and Alistair, uh, perhaps two last ones before we wrap up. First, why do you think underlying, why are they doing this? Is it that someone really is concerned about the financial system? Usually governments don't seem to care. Maybe they're just worried about losing their power or perhaps we're at the point where they've just run out of the metal to continue this scheme. I know Hugo Salinas Price has talked about, he thinks Russia and China are putting a gun to their head. Why do you think right now they are scheduled to go through with this? Why are they doing it? I think, what, what, are we talking about the, we're, we're talking about the Bank of International Settlements, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the new regulations. I th the, the answer is, is actually very, very simple. Um, and I think, I think it's a mistake to sort of think that they're huge, great sort of motivations in the background. <clears throat> they're not. That Lehman crisis scared the pants off everybody. It really did. And particularly the people in, in, in power. Um, interestingly, we've got a journal, journalist here called Robert Peston, and um, he used to be a journalist on Financial Times. Uh, and it was about that time that he moved it, uh, over to the BBC. Um, uh, when I say about the time, the time of the Lehman crisis, he moved over and he interviewed um, Hank Paulson, who you may recall was, you know, trying to handle this situation from um, the US Treasury's, I think, US Treasury's point of view. Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant the Goldman Sachs trading desk. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, the, 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 the guy who I think was, the, you know, on the, he, he was a Treasury guy who was handling this thing. Yeah. Well, he told Peston, um, that uh, he obviously had to talk to the Chinese and Russians because they were creditors through, uh, you know, the, the, the treasuries through, with their very large holdings of US treasuries. The Chinese were quite sort of um, understanding in the situation and uh, didn't really um, feel that they should rock the boat. It was a very different thing with the Russians. The feeling that Polson got was that the Russians were very much on a knife edge as to whether they would just destabilize the whole situation. Now, this ended up on the cutting room floor. It did, it never, it, you know, it, it never um, actually was broadcast, but it was on Peston's blog. So the journalist concerned actually wrote about it. Now, so I think we take that as, uh, as true. But what that basically tells us is that I think that the officials who were concerned at the time of the Lehman crisis were absolutely terrified about what they found. And they did not want to see this again. And, um, you know, I'm sure that other elements of the US government, like, um, you know, the intelligence services, the defense community and all the rest of it, who think there's a greater priority with the enemies of Russia and China, and we can't let them threaten our hegemony, if you like, either the currency hegemony or indeed our uh, military power. We cannot allow that to happen. But the fact of the matter is that uh, America and the world was on the edge of a complete financial collapse. They managed to manage their way out of it. And, um, it required an awful lot of bluff, if you like, um, and uh, it required people in the markets to be convinced that they would succeed. Unfortunately for all of us, they succeeded. Now, what came out of that was uh, the G20 instructed the Bank of International Settlements Basel Committee to come up with new regulations to ensure this never ever happened again those regulations were finally agreed. I mean, they went out for consultation in the spring of 2014. The final version was published in October 2014. And here we are nearly seven years later, finally implementing Basel III.
that is going to happen and um, it cannot be stopped. I mean, there may be a little bit of fiddling around the edges. I can understand that. I mean, for example, um, if you're looking at derivatives, because uh, derivatives are very, <laughs> a very important part of this, um, according to the net stable funding ratio, uh, you can offset derivatives on either side of the balance sheet if those, those derivatives, um, uh, the positions are dependent on each other. So in terms of um, say COMEX, it's rather like looking like uh, at, um, uh, you know, as a spread position, you know? So that you've got longs, shorts and spreads reported. Okay, a spread basically is you sell, let's say uh, one maturity to buy another maturity. And as time goes, they close up and you reverse it. Now, both legs are dependent on each other. Under those circumstances, you can net them off, but anything else you can't. Now there's a little bit of maybe bending of rules by some regulators possible in that context. But basically the answer is that this is now written in stone. And I don't think there is anything um, the deep state or anyone can do about it on the basis that they have got more important priorities. Well, it does sound like it'd be hard to tamp that down. And last one for you, I think will be a great way to end it. I think we are, uh, what is today's date? June 10th. <clears throat> so let's say we take our time machine and we're on July 10th. What has actually happened? And, you know, and then you don't have to give all silver is at this exact price, but do we see on June 28th, is it a wild Lehman-like event? Are gold and silver prices a day on that day trading exponentially higher? What actually happens when this goes through? Well, I think that what I would say is that this is unlikely. This is not a waterfall event, in, in, in my opinion. I don't think you're going to find that on July the 1st, all the American um, bullion, you know, banks bullion desks are going to turn around and say, right, we're going to cut our positions, bang, like that. You know, we're going to shut up shop. No, they will be given a grace period in order to do it. Apart from anything else, if you look at the um, the losses on COMEX for the swaps, I mean, at the moment, they're net short, uh, I can't remember the figure, something like 30, 30 billion, something like that, 34 billion dollars net short. I mean, that's now. They haven't got a 34 billion loss because they're not short at zero, but you can see that they've got a quite a large position that needs to be closed. You cannot do that overnight. So I think what they will try and do is they'll try and evolve their way out of the problem. So um, I think it would be misleading for me to uh, turn around and say, well, you know, in early July, you're going to see uh, the gold and silver price um, you know, start going up because everybody's going to be closing their positions. Well, the banks are going to be closing their positions. I, I mean, I honestly don't know, but I would suspect that um, unless there is a panic, and that's possible, this could actually generate a, a panic amongst the, um, uh, the, the bullion bank trading desks. But unless there is a panic, I think that they will try and just sort of smooth their way out of it. Um, so it'll be a gradual reduction, I think you, you, you'll find. Um, I think what's probably more important, a lot more important, is the interplay between um, the rate of price inflation, um, expectations of where price inflation is going to go, and what that does to the dollar. That to me is going to be the big question. Now, within that context, it is possible that um, higher interest rates are banded as a reason for selling gold on the basis that um, if you hold gold you're going to be missing out on a you know one percent interest rate or whatever i mean now this is complete rubbish <laughs> but it is the sort of thing that is bought if you like by short-term traders wall street guys who, they love it you know absolutely so so um, I wouldn't put it past um, the uh, bullion bank trading desk to try and get that view across, if you like, to help them ease their way out of the position. So you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't going to be a sort of sudden done deal, I don't think. I can I think hear the Jeff deal. Curry commentary right now, and it's going to be exciting. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, 
Um, well, we know we we know that 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 argument is complete rubbish. But um, you know, there are a lot of people in the market um, who don't necessarily, and and this is this is where you know if you make the mistake of thinking that gold is an investment or it's something which I trade, you know, I the hedge funds do this all the time. You know, they're into pairs trading, so they will sell dollar buy gold or buy gold sell dollar. What well, you know. Um, and they don't think beyond that. Um, they look at the chart, they look at um, whatever it is they look at. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and and uh, they then take a decision. But um, the, undoubtedly, in the back of these guys' mind, there is this thing that if interest rates go up uh, for dollars, then that's going to make the dollar more attractive relative to gold. So perhaps I should buy dollars, sell gold. You, know, you, can, see, you can see the thinking. Is completely false and it's completely wrong. It misunderstands the situation completely, but then that's the world we live in. Well, Alistair, I believe that's why they call them bankers and government officials, sometimes alleged regulators too. So I sure appreciate you shedding some light on this uh, and it's gonna be fun to watch it unfold. Actually a quick special note before we add, because this will be at the same time that, because last night I did finally read my scripts which will be sent over to my YouTube ads team that I bought myself as a present. So we're about to plaster all of YouTube. We, you know, before you watch a video, you hear me saying, buy silver now. Just get it in the <laughs> subconscious to give the bankers a little extra, you know, I know how they, they're like action junkies at the casino. So let them try and unravel their short positions while we have even more people realizing the virtues and the benefits that insurance against bankers and governments can provide. Um, and lastly, I would be remiss if I did not mention your great site, goldmoney.com, where in addition to finding your incredible research that CNBC uh, fortunately can't locate and distort, um, can you just tell folks a little bit about gold money, where they can find the research? And also, you know, again, I understand if you don't hold it, you don't own it. So just a second on how people know that if they do use the gold money products that the metals there audit procedures anything just so they know what they are getting there yeah i mean the, the key to understanding what gold money does is it holds um gold and silver and platinum group metals if you want uh in custody it's not on our balance sheet it's under canadian bailment law and it is outside the banking system and all uh, gold and silver and platinum group metals is held in fully insured, high standard vaults, you know, vaulting company, companies who at the moment are all members of the OBMA. And I think we offer something like 10 or 11 vaults around the world. So, you know, if you want to uh, store your gold uh, and silver um, in a different jurisdiction from where you live, which could make it a bit harder for the feds to um, get it out of you, as, as it were, then you have got that option. So really what we're looking at is trying to ensure that through these very, very difficult times, which um, are just getting more difficult, people can preserve their wealth for their future use. And that's basically what gold money does. And I write a research article every Thursday. It's published um, in the sort of you know, mid-afternoon on uh, EST on Thursday, um, and <clears throat> you're scanning down uh, these past articles. And I also do a market report, and that comes out on Friday, again, about Friday afternoon. And basically, it's a sort of summary of what I've seen, what I think has been happening in the markets over that past week. Um, so, you know, it's not a blow by blow, but it's something which hopefully might have just one or two items of interest in it for readers from time to time. Yeah, and I sure appreciate that because after the LBMA comes out with more propaganda, people can read, make jokes about that, and then come over to find out how it really works. And uh, again, I appreciate what you guys do at Gold Money because if people don't want to leave their gold and silver in Bernie Madoff's vault, <laughs> I'm sorry, I meant, I meant JP Morgan's vault. I get the two confused all the time given their close relationship and one of JP Morgan's past deferred prosecution agreements, which and I'm really supposed to have one of those, but we'll leave that aside and just thank you again, Alistair, for shedding some light on this. Uh, exciting times and good to know that the end of the tunnel, you see that light in there, however the dominoes unfold, but 
uh, I think what is clear is that uh, people love hearing from you. They love reading your stuff. Uh, it's, it's really been an honor to get to know you uh, and call you a friend as time has gone by. So thank you so much. And we'll look forward to checking back in next month, hopefully. Well, thank you very much for your kind words, Chris.